Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. And it's always great to welcome to our show somebody who's put back into rugby what gave him as a player, the high performance manager for the South African rugby across all teams. Louis Kuhn. Louis, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Louis. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, welcome to your listeners as well. Always great to have an ex-Springbok on the show, particularly in a World Cup year, not just for the big boys, but also for the junior Springboks. As last week, you heard us talking to Pofana and Glocko, the coach of the under-20s. But let's first talk about Louis Kuhn. We remember you as a, a utility back at a fly-half. You played for the Springboks, but you seem to have kind of not disappeared from the scene, but disappeared from the public eye after playing for the box. What have you been up to over the last couple of years? Um, yo, Louis, no, I've been coaching um, since I stopped playing rugby in 2005. I've been coaching. I'm, I was fortunate to, to start my coaching career at Western Province. Um, Rassi Rasmus uh, was appointed director of rugby. I was very fortunate to be part of, of his coaching staff. I remember um, when Rassi started with the Stormers, um, I was blessed to have in that coaching team Brendan Fenter, uh, Gary Gold, Jock Ninober, Rassi himself, um, and myself as uh, the kicking and skills coach. So I was blessed to, you know, when I stopped playing, to, to be amongst greats of the coaching game. And uh, yeah, I plugged away and, and um, I was fortunate to coach at Poland as well. And then um, I was appointed at SA Rugby in Rassi's Moby unit. And then, yeah, journeyed with Heineke Meyer um, with his Springbok uh, coaching staff. And then Rassi appointed me as high-performance manager when Rassi actually left for Ireland in 2016. When he came back 2018, um, yeah, I continued. And to this day, I work with NSA Rugby as the high-performance manager and reporting into Rassi and more or less oversee, you know, the, the junior programs for him. Let's just remind everybody, because unfortunately, as a Western Province supporter, we're not going to be in the semi-finals of the Curry Cup this year. But let's remind everybody, you were in the team that won the Curry Cup way back in 1997. It's changed a lot since then, hasn't it? For sure. Um, yeah, yes, again, so so blessed to be in, in a team of superstars. I could, I, my job was just to, to pass the ball and to kick the ball. <laughs> um, but I was very fortunate to be amongst superstars. Uh, James Small, Justin Swart, Peter Rousseau, Bob Skinstead. Um, you know, Dick Mio was, was just a remarkable rugby brain and, and captain. So really blessed to play in that team. And yeah, I think in those days, you know, I think it, it was full stadiums. I think that for me is, is, is a big difference. Tell my sons that, that we played Curry Cup in front of like sold out stadiums at Newlands and they can't believe me. Um, and, um, yeah, so a lot of, a lot has changed. The landscape has changed. The competition structure has changed. Um, but still, again, you know, you you would you appreciate um, these last couple of rounds in Curry Cup how physical it was and and what it means to the players. I think it just it just shines through again what this cup means to the players. If you watch these last couple of games, it's just been brutal. Um, and being a Western Province supporter myself, how good was Western Province uh, this weekend against the Shock? It was just absolutely beautiful to watch. Just go back to those days. I mean, I know. Rugby in general is still the same, but your thoughts on when you ran out at that hallowed ground of Newlands into what was 40-odd thousand spectators yelling and screaming right on top of you, um, unbelievable atmospheres, and now 
Newlands is of a derelict, sad to see what it looks like, and the move to the Cape Town Stadium and now Athlone Stadium, which I think is fantastic to take Western Province into the communities. Um, but professionalism has actually made the game different from a spectator point of view as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, you know, I would say the, you know, the world has moved on and technology is, is, is really driving um, business. And I think obviously it's, be, it's become a big business sport and we have to evolve with the times. Um, and, uh, you know, I think um, the move, the move from Newlands to, to Cape Town Stadium, I think um, my generation would, would probably be, you know, a little bit sentimental and, and sad. It was, it was a really, really special place. Uh, my dad took me there from the age of three, and um, I grew up there. It was a dream of mine. I always told my father, if I could just play one game there, I could they could bury me. Um, and uh, it, it meant so much to my generation. You know? And it's, it's like you say, it's hallowed ground. But the new generation of players and, and, and the young generation coming through, I look at my kids, you know, they will, they will eventually see Cape Town Stadium as as Cape Town's home ground, the Stormers' home ground. And and it will also become, hopefully, um, a, a really special place for them as well. I think we are, with what we've seen from the Stormers over the past two years, it's just been wonderful and beautiful to watch. And now they've, again, got the attention of Cape Town, the Western Cape, how they've pulled people together into that stadium over the past years. It's just been phenomenal and you know, I can only wish for my kids to experience the same um, that I've experienced at Newlands, and and hopefully that that special atmosphere that only Newlands could give you. Hopefully, they will also experience that um, in Cape Town Stadium. And let's just remind everybody, if we may, um, you were at Hull Gymnasium, and then you went to Stellenbosch University. So, as much as we talk about the hallowed grounds of Newlands, the one thing that hasn't changed is Kutzenberg um, and the strength of Marty Rugby. And I know. A lot's changed. I mean, in those days, you would have had somebody saying, Hartlop, not I, Boston, bring me back that leaf is the way training and fitness was. You're off to America now. I mean, would you have ever dreamed 25 years ago when you were playing at Kutzenberg and at Newlands that you'd have a high-performance coach going to the United States of all places to learn about high-performance coaching? Yeah, it's actually remarkable. Um yeah, it's even, you know, we, we, we talk about change and, I, and even, you know, Marty's with Varsity Cup now being such a wonderful tournament, wonderful platform, not only for the universities, but for, for, for young players. Um, you know, in my days, we had one inter-varsity game and that was against uh, UCT. And the main thing was to watch the, the students in the river afterwards, you know. Um, yeah. um, but nowadays, again, it's, it's business and the club, Club rugby scene has really changed. I think Western Cape is still blessed to have a good and a strong club rugby base, but but adversely things have changed from from when we played. So you know, I think again it's just become better and it's just become a, a much greater opportunity for for young kids. America, I mean, you, you're looking at. I, I was blessed to coach there last year with the Houston Sabercats. I spent six months there just to go and, and I, I was the attack and, and, and backline coach for the Houston Sabercats in their MLR tournament. And I was really blown away actually by the talent pool, um, the quality of the coaching, the quality of the, of, of the players. Um, I think obviously they do have a long way to go as a rugby nation and to grow the game. But the, the influence from the UK, New Zealand, Ireland, Australia is huge at the moment and 
you know, I think they're going to pick up quickly. And with World Cup, I think it's 2031 for the men and 33 for the women. Um, America is preparing itself for uh, what I call a rugby tsunami. So it's not it's not strange that you know high performance workshops for the the tier one and tier two countries in the world are now hosted in in the US because they are I think getting their ducks in a row for a rugby tsunami. Let's just go back and you mentioned something about playing the Ikes in a inter varsity. I think we lost a little bit of the club rugby stroke varsity scene for a while until the varsity cup arrived and I think that in a way has once again strengthened our rugby by virtue of the fact that you're no longer going from school to provincial and then expected to play in franchise level that gap between school and franchise or school and curry cup is being breached by varsity cup rugby and from a performance point of view and yourself as a performance coach now do the guys come to you stronger because of Varsity Cup rugby? I think Varsity Cup is is one of the platforms, um, or let's call it pathways or avenues. Um, seeing that not all of our boys that that do come through our elite play development system, you know, qualify to go to university. So we do see that there are quite a number of players that can't go the Varsity Cup route, um, and these boys would probably be caught by not caught, but be contracted on, on development contracts by unions. So you have these two different avenues that are giving us the opportunity to look at the players. And um, I must say, the players that, that came through from Varsity Cup, you look at Ethan James, um, Lownell, Cornet Weilbach, um, the guys that were recently in our in our mix, I think, over the last two years. Um, I think Varsity Cup has been great for them. You know, some of the boys do um, get the opportunity to go straight from school and then they play senior Varsity Cup. And, you know, it's tough. You've got to you got to grow up quickly and uh, you got to mature quickly. And, and, a, and a player like Lownell, um, you know, just did it like a walk in a park. You know, so um, I would definitely agree with you that Varsity Cup has really been a great, great platform for us. Um, obviously, the, the only thing that I would, if I, if I must be a little bit, um, not, not criticized, but if I, if I, the one or two things that we do pick up from the boys that come from Varsity Cup is that there's a big difference between playing in a junior world cup in terms of test match rugby versus you know a, an expansive let's call it a free flowing type of rugby that that is promoted at varsity cup level um, unfortunately test match rugby does require a little bit a little bit of a different skill set and a different mindset um, than what the varsity cup game would, would would require but those are things that we can that we can fix you know as long as as long as the boys are open to it Let's just look back in your day. Rugby was pretty much a winter sport. Now it's played throughout the whole year. From a, a high performance manager's point of view, are we playing too much rugby? Do you think? Um, our junior Springboks uh, trained last week against Western Province, um, and we were just chatting to the coaching staff, and uh, they mentioned that they were now in week forty-seven um, of a fifty-two week cycle. You know, and it's incredible if you think of it. Um, the key now, I think that the, the, there's a new dimension in sport that now needs to be really looked after, and that is the mental side of performance. I know it's always it's been there, and I think we are way behind, if, if I must be blatantly honest, when it comes to rugby and sports psychology or mental coaches. If you think of golf, if you think of tennis, if you think of professional sport in the UK and the US, mental coaches, uh, you know, sports psychology is... It's just as common as what a skill coach would be or a medical doctor in a in a team setup. But in our environment now, it's still not really 
something that is that is promoted or something that's budgeted for, to be honest. And I think that is the, the sort of the new area that we need to really invest in is to how do you keep a player fresh mentally if he's in week 47 of a 52-week cycle and he still needs to play a Curry Cup semi-final and then another another week a Curry Cup final. And then some of these, these boys go into test match rugby. You know, maybe a guy that now plays Curry Cup is called into the Springbok squad in, a, in two weeks' time and then he's just got to go again. So <laughs> it seems like it never stops and, and it's a big concern in my opinion. Do you think, Louis, that we're in a situation whereby Ekasamun, I'm a rugby player, I can't say I'm having a mental problem, I can't say that this is getting me down because it will make me look weak? Definitely, and I think it's not, for us as men, it's not something that we, you know, that we are yet sort of comfortable with, to tell the Irish, now I'm going to see somebody or I'm going to, you know, I need somebody to help me, you know, I'm struggling. It's it's something that we struggle with, am I right? And, and, And it's... I think it's going to take um, one or two or three guys just to come out and say, look, guys, I'm, I, I need this and I need support. Um, but I think we are realistic. I think we, we do realize that this is going to be something that needs to be addressed. Um, I think the monotony of, of the whole thing, and I think people out there only see the boys playing on Saturday, um, but these boys do have a weekly schedule that they religiously have to follow. Some of them have been playing, you know, um, URC rugby and Curry Cup rugby. Coaching staffs have been coaching URC and Curry Cup games at the same weekend. They've been coaching two games. So, you know, these these professionals are, are really put under immense pressure at the moment and we need to look after them from a mental side and because the monotony of, of the whole thing, it's not the physical thing so much. It is, it is physical, but I mean, it's also the monotony of 47, 48 weeks to pack your bags, you know, go to training, go to gym sessions, go to field sessions, Pack your bags, go to the airport, get onto a plane, go play a match, come back, recovery in, in the ice bath, then into the gym. So it, it becomes, you know, just monotonous. It's and, yeah. and and I think it's it's important that we do freshen up the players and the coaching staff. Yeah, and you uh, are just under six foot. You take a bloke who's six foot eight, sitting in an economy class seat, flying across the world, living out of a suitcase in a bed that necessarily doesn't fit him. Um, it's difficult. It's not this glamour life that people think it is when they see them on a Saturday afternoon running out in front of 50,000 people at the Cape Town Stadium, is it? Absolutely. Um, I think people, um, yeah, I mean, they are professional. They get paid for what they do and they do... Um, you know, they do an incredible job every weekend. Um, and people expect that of them. And it's also right. I understand that. But the general public don't really understand what they go through um, on a weekly basis. And like you say, the travel, I think the guys at, at, at Province told me, that I think they flew eight times to Europe and back, um, you know, in, a, in the season, which is actually incredible. If you think when I played Super Rugby, we flew once to Australia, New Zealand, and we stayed there for four or five weeks and we came back and that was it. Um, yeah. You know, it was a different challenge, but it was one flight. Um, now the boys are expected to to travel to Leicester, come back, fly to Durban, come back. You know, again the next week and fly to UK to, to play Harlequins, for example. It's just mm. tremendous, tremendously 
stressful on them and strenuous. So no wonder the boys would be in week 48 saying, look, I can't wait for this weekend to finish because I just want, I do not want to touch a rugby ball for the next three, four weeks. And they are, we need to respect that. Tell me what, without giving anything away, I mean, I don't want to let our, our neighbours and, and our friends in New Zealand and Australia who might be listening, give them any, uh, uh, you know, inside information. But I guess the change room physiotherapists' tables look quite busy at the end of a game after 47 weeks of playing rugby. No, for sure. Um, I think the amount of strapping that yeah. is being spent. If I knew what I know now, I should have opened a strapping business and supplied <laughs> strapping to professional rugby teams because it is a war zone afterwards. And um, the game, I think one thing you asked the question, what has changed from, from when I played? It was probably physical in a different sense because we weren't watched as much. There happened a lot of other stuff down at the bottom of a breakdown that what than what's happening now. <laughs> But yeah. the game has just become immensely physical. Um, and uh, yeah, what the boys put their, their bodies through and even what the women put their bodies through in a rugby match, is it's I, I take my hat off. I've got the utmost respect for them. So let's just talk now about on-the-field stuff because you were involved with the ladies' team in uh, the Ladies' World Cup. And of course, the Under-20 the World Cup uh, is coming up. And I'm sure you must be delighted that they're going to be games at your old school and in and around Paul and Stellenbosch and, and the final at Athlone Stadium all happening here in uh, the Western Cape. Tell us how the ladies, how you were happy with how the ladies performed and uh, your thoughts of the under-20s. Um, yeah, the ladies sort of came a little bit um, unexpectedly uh, to me, but um, I had about 10 days for preparation before we left for Spain in March. Um, we were a bit undercooked because the girls played their last rugby match in October of 2022. They did not play a rugby match or had a training session up until end of February of the next year. So, you know, and they won't mind me saying this, but they, they were not really conditioned for test match rugby. Um, so, I knew we were we were going to be really thin and I also did not have the sevens players because they were playing in a Challenger series. So the superstars of the women's game, the Nadine Ruesses and, and Ayanna Malingas, you know, weren't with us. Um, but I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it was really a blessing. I, I enjoyed every single moment of, of coaching them and they really, really grew in a very short space of time. I think we put a lot of good stuff in place and, um, you know, they pulled off a great victory against Spain, which is higher ranked than in, um, in World Rugby. So that was really good. And then we went to, to Africa Cup. We had three days to prepare, Louis. Uh, if you, if you, if you, <laughs> if you, yeah. If you can imagine that, we only had three days to prepare because the girls were playing for the unions and, you know, we didn't want to interfere with the unions. So we had three days to prepare. We went to Africa. Um, we also took a young side. It was a great experience. Madagascar, yo, um, I said to my wife when I come back, you know, I'm going to count every single blessing that I have for living in South Africa. Um, you know, the I think the poverty and the, the challenges that the people face on that island is, is way bigger than, than what we are confronted with. And the girls also experienced, um, you know, that and they, they were really emotional, seeing a lot of kids very hungry next to the streets. Um, I thought as a group, we actually got much more off the field from the tour as what we got on the field. Although the rugby was tough, I think we grew as a group and we became really thankful as a group for, for what we have and what rugby is giving back to us. You know, so, um, so it was a great experience. I absolutely loved coaching the girls. Um, they really stepped up. They played some fantastic rugby in Africa and, and made long continue. And, and may the people of South Africa start realizing that these girls, you know, are phenomenal rugby players and they're going to, I speculate or I predict 
that our nation is going to fall in love with these women and they're going to support them with everything that they have um, over the next couple of years. And, and hopefully also when they, in the next three World Cup cycles, maybe I predict that in one of these, they're going to be really competitive and they're going to, they're going to make us really proud. The under 20s, uh, yeah, the under 20s, obviously, I don't want to bore you with too much information, but it's a process that starts when they're under 15. So from this group of 30 that we selected, 24 of them was at the under 16 EPD camp when they were 15, 16 years old. So it's testimony to the work that Nico Serfontaine and Herman Masimla and Barry McDonald does in our elite play development programs. It's, it's actually remarkable to say that over a four, five-year period, you know, 24 of them... Um, stayed together and that the scouting and the talent confirmation that happened over the five years were accurate. So it's great to see that. And now they've been busy with a two-month-long preparation phase in the academy. It's a tough environment, Louis. It's not for the faint-hearted. You know, there's a couple of boys that, that did not make it through the, the academy phases because it's a tough phase. But, you know, they battled through it. I must take my hat off. Um, I'm going to tell you they're ready. There's no real superstars in this group. If I refer to a superstar... It's just like, for example, a game breaker like Damien Willemser or a Marnie LeBoc or Ambrose Papier that can really score a try out of absolutely nowhere. Um, this group will win the World Cup um, by grinding it out and winning it as a unit, which in my book is actually a, a strength. You know, it's actually a great uh, arrow to have in your little bag at the back when you want to fire shots. Not, they're not going to fire shots with individuals. They're going to fire shots as a group. And I'm very excited about this group. And one thing, I guess, with South African rugby players, the heart is always enormous. So we're going to see that. And fitness, of course, is always a key. Which brings me to, and it would be remiss of me to not ask you, um, how are our 30-plus Springbok rugby players who are going to go and defend the World Cup doing? And in particular, without giving any information to our uh, opponents, how's our captain doing? <laughs> Now you're asking me questions that I'm not uh, allowed to, to answer, Louis, or even it's about my baby. Um, I was I trying know... my best, Louis. I was trying. <laughs> I mean, I knew that it was a, a a bouncer of a question. I just thought maybe you're nice and relaxed and you would just give us a bit of info. But I understand. You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> I promise I will. So listen, okay, I know you can't talk about how they're doing. But I mean, I guess uh, we all are behind them and we most certainly believe um, that they can go out there and defend this title when you consider um, already the All Blacks and Australians are making excuses that we're not in their franchise world anymore and they don't think the strength of their rugby is up to scratch. Are they just being crybabies? Again, you're going to get me into trouble, but all I can say <laughs> is that <laughs> I think this group if I can call it, you know, you, you are sitting with, I would, with all respect to previous uh, groups, most probably the, the best tight five um, that a generation has, has delivered. Um, and if you think of the tight five that starts the test match and then the tight five that sits on the bench, I don't want to be a team that play against the Springboks because, I mean, imagine Lode Jager and even Etzebet runs off and then you have a, a monster of a man that runs onto the field in Erges Neiman runs onto the yeah. field and, and Vincent Koch and and Bongi or even Malcolm Marks. I mean yeah. the type five that is available for Russian Jock to work with in, in this World Cup is just phenomenal. And I always say if you have that, you know, you have the type five that can mix it, that can get you over the gain line, that can secure set piece ball. Um you always will have a chance, Louis. You always will be in that in that semi and final if you have a a tight five like that. 
And then you've got players like a Pollard and a Damien Willemsen and a, a Damien Dalende, people with 50-plus caps in your back line. I mean, I think it's a it's a phenomenal generation of players that they've had the privilege to work with over two World Cup cycles. And um, there's no reason that I even hesitate to think that we won't be in that semi and that final. If you're in that semi and final, you've got a chance. Louis, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I've tried my best to get information out of you that I know you can't give us. But anyway, we didn't get it, but we tried. Um, once again, have a wonderful trip. Bring back all the knowledge that you can and don't impart too much knowledge to our opponents when you're overseas there. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Louis. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for your contribution towards rugby and especially to women's rugby. I would love for you guys also to give the women a shot and a, and a shout out and give them your support by the end of the year when they play in that World 15s. It's going to be a phenomenal experience for them as well. But thank you so much for having me. We most certainly will. The High Performance Manager for SA Rugby, Louis Kuhn, our guest on tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Wonderful insight and lovely to chat to an ex-Springbok who's put his uh, expertise while on the field back at the end of the day after he's retired from playing. Great to see that. That's tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. As always, be nice to each other. Until next time. Bye-bye.